The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Tom Bowman, is respected as leading authority on green solutions for industry, scientists, and the general public. During the program, he shares values and an acute awareness of the critical point to which we have reached, where immediate collaboration among leading drivers of environmental thought has to be considered. My guest today is considered a leading authority in environmental issues, where heads of industry, scientists and commentators must now, as a prime responsibility, take the lead in changing direction on green issues. As a designer and specialist in communications in this area, he profoundly seeks through his company's Bowman Design Group and Bowman Global Change to bring solutions and not mere ideas to the table of leaders in society capable of arresting the current downswing in emissions and environmental hazards prevalent in our daily society. Tom, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, David. Well, it's uh, great to have you here, Tom. Um, in this first program, uh, what I would like to do, uh, if that is uh, comfortable with you, is share your your career and your life from the early days and, and chart how you uh, developed um, from an early age into um, th this area that you now find yourself involved in, mm -hmm. in the green issues and sustainability. Sounds great. So what I'd like to do is start with your childhood and, and look back um, at that time. Uh, was your childhood uh, growing up in, in an urban or a, a country environment? And, and what was it during that period that, that really acted as the catalyst to, to take you uh, down this road of design? Well, I grew up in small towns, uh, mostly in California, but also for uh, in my elementary school years in Michigan. And those towns were quite connected to the surrounding environment. We spent our time unsupervised playing along the river and exploring, catching frogs, climbing canyons, uh, and sort of seeking out the, the history in the orange groves that surround, uh, surrounded Southern California at the time. And it created a childhood where we were constantly outdoors, uh, and in fact, rarely indoors unless we had to be. And I think that's a, a very uh, important difference from the way kids are brought up today. There was no such thing, as you know, as a play date when we were young. Uh, you simply jumped on your bicycle and went searching for friends. That environment... Uh, looking back on those days and looking at your parents and, and seeing um, industry in full flow back then, you still had the cottage industries and uh, you had manufacturing and, and heavy industry. Looking back on that period, how do you think that uh, those, uh, those industries impacted our environment and, and what are we seeing from those impacts now? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, when I was young in small towns, 
you knew the shop owners personally, and very few people seemed to go off to work in factories. Um, so there was a much greater sense of, of the interconnection between the things people did for a living. And, of course, the impact um, was local and relatively small. Of course, the population was, what, a third of what it is, well, half of what it is today. Um, and the, the, as I grew up in Southern California and watched the orange groves disappear and be replaced by housing tracks and the air get thicker and thicker with smog, um, it, it gradually be, began to dawn on me uh, that, the, that the impact of humans on the local environment was no longer as local as I once thought it was. Um, and you couldn't simply um, bury what you did and ignore it. Um, you know, the things had changed, and the, and the impact of what we did was going to be around increasingly for a long time. It seems strange, doesn't it? I, I have programs with such a diverse set of, uh, of guests, uh, whether they're from industry or, or political arenas or whatever. And we, look, we see now a country that has a markedly reduced manufacturing base, industrial mm-hmm. base, and that, of course, that's what lead, is leading to uh, profound unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, the strange thing about that is that it was those very industries, really, that has led to so much uh, global warming and so many environmental issues. But w- what is it in your mind, Tom, that has to... Uh, replace that, replace those industries where we can get people back into employment? Well, um, that's a large and multifaceted question, I would say. Um, I, I once put, you know, I grew up in in the town surrounded by agriculture. And uh, and interestingly enough, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a truly, a, <laughs> literally a preacher's kid. And so I grew up quite aware of what was going on in the civil rights movement, the role of the church as a as a member of society back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and the sense of it, you know, at the time, um, was that there was there was a responsibility to, about the things we did for a living that extended beyond making money and and beyond simply funding, you know, our our lives. Um, there was a sense that people contributed to the community in whatever small way they did. And if you if you think about a, a job, as many people do today, simply as a way to afford your home and, and uh, livelihood, um, but with the sense that there's a disconnection from the community you live in, from the other people you live with, and the environment that you're within, then I think there's a, a profound loss of... of of a sense of responsibility to anyone else and to anything else. So, you know, rather than, I don't start from the point of saying, let's figure out what kinds of jobs can come back into America and how people can work more locally and that sort of thing. I think first about what the role of business is uh, as a member of a community and what it is that we provide for each other and therefore what it is that we owe to one another. Do you think that um, this has been exasperated by technology rather than helped? I suspect so, yeah. And, and, you know, the the rise of technology in our culture is uh, coincident with the movement of manufacturing to Asia um, and South America and other places where 
where labor was much cheaper. And we haven't ever seen technology in the context um, of local work, really. We have, you know, we've become con- the, the quintessential consumers. Um, and, and technology has a way of, in, it's, you know, it's the, it's the classic uh, uh, irony that, that technology connects us in ways we've never been connected before. But it also isolates us because we tend to work alone so much more and we spend so much of our day with machines rather than with other people. Now, of course, that makes your job even harder, I'm assuming, as um, somebody who works in communications because that's clearly the case, isn't it? I mean, even if I look at, uh, at England... Um, I certainly grew up in a time when you had agriculture and you had industry and you had apprenticeships and uh, and skills. And, and as soon as those started to dissipate, you saw people become more insular. Um, now, going through your career and starting off in design, obviously from the, the, the traditional uh, design methodology uh, and then moving into the, the computer-aided uh, design, mm-hmm. um, what was it in particular that's interesting to me uh, that changed in in communication you know we we've gone through this uh, recently this brand communication but mm-hmm. but but in in terms of what you do as uh, communicating not only to industry but also to people how is it that uh, that communication changes what is the paradigm now to bring people back together rather than being insular Well, I think you've put your finger on something really interesting. And I've always considered myself as much of a a sort of closet social psychologist as I am a designer. I'm very interested in ideas and in the way ideas and presentations influence us in conscious and unconscious ways. And I know that there's a a, um, almost default sense these days that all great solutions to marketing communication and education and so forth will be driven by technology but you know the most the most fundamental form of meaningful interaction is conversation between people and as i've designed uh, museum exhibits trade show exhibits and that sort of thing i've always thought of it in terms of ways to facilitate conversation so because it's really the most simple things that always resonate most deeply. So we use technology like crazy. You know, we do, we do touchscreen interactive work. We, we use all kinds of exotic lighting effects and, and other things as we design. Um, but I, I'd like to think of them as harnessing the tools of technology and design to bring people into conversations about things that they wouldn't otherwise be talking about. And that, I think, is where the real chance for transformation takes place. What have you, what have you found, though, by uh, modern technology? I mean, uh, social media. Um, how has that changed the way that you think and the way that you look at this? I mean, ha- has that assisted you in any way in what you do? In the uh, the shortest answer is it makes me feel older than I used to feel um, because I really do think that the generation gap with uh, with social media is significant. Those of us who grew up before it tend to regard you know we use computers as tools in the same way we use hammers and screwdrivers and calculators. Um, we don't sort of live within them in the way that that my younger employees do. 
I know I have employees, for example, who will spend you know several hours a day on MySpace or Facebook, whichever whichever it is that's caught their imagination at the time. And I've experimented with them, um, but I haven't seen them to be. Uh, I haven't discovered a way to use them to to real effect for the most part. Um, they they seem to be dominated by whim, um, by sort of. Uh, and I don't want to be putting them down because, I, as I say, I'm not a real true participant in them. Um, but they tend to focus largely on on the minutia unless something becomes viral. And if a if an idea becomes viral or a video becomes viral, and you know gazillions of people see it, it seems to have some real kick to it, some real power. But the challenge is, as a designer or a communicator, you can never predict which things will will work that way. Don't, don't you think, though, that, uh, and I agree with you, certainly uh, viral campaigns, um, good Lord, I can cite the, uh, the English uh, lady, I can't remember her name now, but who, who uh, was on... Um, the Singer? Yes, you, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, if you look at that, and she was on one of these portals, and there were five million hits. Exactly. But, but uh, to, to me, would I be right in saying in your business that uh, Facebook, Twitter, and all of these other platforms are, are really not designed in a corporate sense, but more on a personal uh, sense? Well, they're designed for that purpose, and and I'll tell you something that's slightly disturbing, and that is that uh, a, a member of a large corporate, Fortune 500 corporation, came to me once, and he said, would you be willing to write blogs that, that are in our, you know, for a fee, that are in our interest, and work the social media on our behalf, but without any connection to us? And I said, no, <laughs> I wouldn't be willing to do that. Um, but this goes on all the time. Uh, the, you know, to think that that the social media are entirely democratic and not manipulated by vested interests, I think, would be naive. Um, it can be difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff, and uh, I suspect that the majority of what goes on there is is people simply creating meaning for themselves and their social networks for themselves. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but there is the other side of it, too. There are the t- attempts to use social media for political campaigns and for business marketing purposes. Uh, sometimes it's up front, sometimes it's not. I just don't think that the um, the business applications for it are as uh, have been really figured out yet. Um, my great hope, of course, is that the media is so democratic and so uh, sort of naturally viral that it will make it difficult for um, business and political concerns to, to really manipulate how that plays. Can we return back to California in sure. the in the eighties and nineties? Mm-hmm. Uh, through your eyes, uh, your personal perception, how um, how was social infrastructure changing? Uh, how were habits changing, uh, and uh, in the ways that it affected your your business? Well, the eighties was the heyday of of spending money on big design projects. I mean, there were, in some cases, almost no limits. Uh, and this actually extended into the, into the early 90s, before the, well before the dot-com bubble blew up. Uh, and in that time, um, there, was a, there was a real sense in Los Angeles, anyway, uh, that if you could imagine something, you could find somebody who could make it for you. 
uh, and it was a it was a terrifically creative time for those of us who wanted to be at the cutting edge of design. And there were really no strict rules about it. It was it it was really about inventing and trying new things and pushing boundaries, and it was all done by hand. And as the computer began to infiltrate the design world, um, those of us who literally got Mac Pluses and started fooling around with design programs, um, I remember talking to my um, my primary creative partner over the years and asking him, what do you think is going to happen to the handmade quality that we tend to like from time to time or we think <laughs> is important from time to time? And we sort of we sort of looked at each other and didn't know um, because the computer has a tendency to refine things and i think that one of the interesting things to me in the development of technology as we've really migrated to it you know we started using it in bits and pieces for certain production processes and certain little pieces of our creative process but as it has developed and become increasingly powerful and intuitive I'm I'm seeing things done on computers that are elaborate versions of things we used to do by hand. There's a much more um, handmade quality to a lot of the design work I see coming out of computers now than I ever I ever thought could happen. So it's so it's not uh, contrary to what one could believe that computers make designers more of a technician than they do a, a, a visual artist or, or somebody who is really attuned to some sort of lyrical flow in their work. Yeah, I, d- I don't think so. I think that was our fear, and I think that's the way the computer started out. You know, we began use it, using it as a way to do drafting, and we used it as a way to do typesetting and some of the sort of mechanical pieces of our work because it really wasn't up to snuff for the creative process and we would um, still draw by hand and 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 then as the computers began to evolve and i think this is sort of a this is sort of a trend that repeats itself again and again and a new technology comes out in the early days it's kind of clunky you have to be a little bit of a technophile to use it uh... maybe a little geeky but as time goes by there's a gradual sort of maturing process that becomes increasingly intuitive and and empowering to users. And there's a point at which uh, it's almost a critical mass takes hold and and people start using it um, to do all kinds of creative things that that they either used to do in other ways or, in some cases, things that you just couldn't do before. Now, with all that said, um, what was the catalyst that took you into the the climate and sustainability areas tom uh, was it uh, disasters like the exxon valdez or uh, what was it that that brought you into this arena as a specialist or somebody who wanted to understand it yeah i i came into it in in one of the most unusual ways possible you know back when exxon valdez happened and when Southern California was attempting to clean up its air quality, um, there was a real sense that, that we were doing things that we liked to do and we cared about the environment and we contributed to environmental organizations. But the problems were sort of distant to us. Uh, and that all seemed all right until I, I had the really unusual privilege of designing a, a brand-new museum, creating a museum in, in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., 
And my client was the National Academy of Sciences, which uh, is responsible. It's basically an independent honors society of the nation's leading scientists, engineers, medical professionals, and they advise Congress and the White House on the science about important policy questions. Um, and they issue their reports under the name the National Research Council, NRC. And I learned climate science uh, from some of the nation's most eminent climate scientists. And I have to say it was shocking. This was back in 2004. And the idea, really the mood among the scientists back in 2004, uh, was that this was really quite evidently a serious problem. And they were saying things like, you know, it's a good thing we have a few decades to sort this out before it gets really terrible. Uh, and because of that attitude, I was I was disturbed by it, but I was focused on keeping my business going and growing it and and it sort of it sort of dropped into the back burner until two years later or three years later when I was asked to design a second exhibit by the folks at the Birch Aquarium, which is part of Scripps Institution of Oceanography in California. And the mood among the scientists on that panel had literally flipped from um, thank goodness we have some time to figure it out to to one of them saying time's up. We can't spend a lot more time thinking this over. We really need to start taking action. And I will never forget the day when uh, uh, I was sitting in their gorgeous conference room overlooking the Pacific Ocean, looking at the science evidence, and really, it really sunk in um, in a way it never had before. And I found myself leaving, literally driving home from that meeting thinking, given the skill set that I have, I wonder what it is that I can contribute to engaging the public more effectively with this problem. Do you think, uh, <clears throat> changing the subject slightly here, mm -hmm. do you think that the heads of industry, do you think that the Toyota, do you think that the Prius, uh, do you think uh, the, um, the HP uh, paradigm uh, has gone far enough to counter these severe problems that we have today? Uh, I think that as a society, including the business world, we are sticking a toe in the water. We're nibbling around the edges. Um, and, you know, there are some business leaders who have taken this on much more seriously. Ray Anderson at Inter Interface Floor, for example, um, decided to take his company carbon neutral. And uh, he tells, as rather famously tells a story of, spending more than a year on the road going to all of his company's facilities and talking to his line managers about this priority. And it was literally a year before it sunk in enough with them that he felt like he was making any progress. So, you know, what I see from Toyota and, and other, uh, other large corporations is that they're, they're moving in the dire right direction, but they're moving... Um, at the level of, of testing innovation to see what will catch hold and what won't. Um, and, you know, they're not really, they're not, no one's driving this bus, frankly. Is, uh, is, that, a, is that a problem uh, between the, the sustainability uh, card, I suppose, that they have to raise and the necessity for, possibility, uh, for profitability and, and uh, responsibility to stakeholders? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I would suspect that companies like Toyota and Honda, have a, they either have a genuine interest in sustainability 
or they see energy efficiency as the next great move in the marketplace. And anyone who forecasts, um, reads the forecast from the UN and the International Energy Agency about the rapidly growing demand for resources, especially in the developing nations of Asia, um, pretty clearly can see that if you're not dramatically more energy efficient than you are today, you're going to be paying an extraordinarily high price. So they're savvy in that sense. Um, and I think that in some ways one of the greatest uh, uh, challenges that we face is this idea that quarterly profits always have to be high and that politicians are only in office for a very short time and they need to constantly work on the next election because those two near-term demands make it very difficult for people to plan coherently and uh, and devote large resources to the long term, which is really what we need to be doing. What did you What did you do at this time um, to support your arguments? I know that you set up a, a very successful initiative in your own company uh, to reduce emissions, and obviously use that as an example and um, a way to lead the way. Uh, set an example, I suppose, for your your clients and your own employees. Um, but but after that, um, what was it that you recognized as the pivotal direction that you had to take to um, uh, voice your concerns and to make real changes? Well, I sort of, I sort of went in three directions simultaneously, which has made me a split personality, truly. Uh, one was to, to find out what I could do as a private citizen, as a, as a household member, and as a small business owner to slash my own company's emissions. Um, because if I couldn't do it, what could I really say to anyone else about doing it? And, and I did a lot of the painful research that people talk about, and to my great surprise, um, we cut our emissions by 65% in just two years. And this is all, this is all vetted by the uh, Climate Registry, who reports, gives us a third-party report of our emissions every year. Uh, and we paid for it in 15 months, and we're saving money in the process. And it, it says to me, that the amount of energy we waste and, to, and take for granted every day is so enormous that there are really big opportunities for people to get involved and contribute. So that was one side. And uh, the second piece that involves the sort of sustainable business movement or green business movement is an attempt to figure out how middle managers in various industries can make more sustainable choices every day. Um, and I, since I work in the exhibition industry, which is about a $130 billion industry here in the United States, um, I undertook to try to do some, some real serious carbon emissions calculations based entirely on the choices that exhibit managers and shop owners and transportation managers are making on a day-to-day -day basis. Nobody does that kind of research and packages it for the decision points that, that people are dealing with on a daily basis. So we're at sort of completed phase one of this work. We've got, we've got more work to do, and ultimately, if we get some financial support, we'll do it um, with one of the international life cycle agencies that, that does these calculations for a living so we can verify our results. But the point is that in industry after industry after industry, we need to enable decision makers who, who deal, to add sustainability to their work plate every day. 
Well, uh, how do you achieve that, though? Because it seems to me that you could either use the heavy arm or you could create some sort of paradigm where there is an, a, 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 some sort of structure of accountability. Um, and I could be terribly cynical here, and I'm not meaning to be, but is there a risk in what you do in communications, not personally in, in, in your vision, but is there always a risk in looking at a lot of these companies waving the green card that actually it is a, um, it is a cover uh, for their, their main uh, business output? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, um, the Edelman PR agency reported a year ago that public trust in corporations is literally at an all-time low. Um, and there is great risk to any company that champions, you know, sort of waves the green card that can't back it up. Um, it's very clear that the public, the public that cares, and, and the public opinion survey suggests that about half of the American public says they're willing to reward or punish companies based on their climate activities. Um, the trick is they don't know who to reward and they don't know who to punish. And it suggests that if you are not really transparent about the steps you're taking and the limits of those steps and what your ultimate goals are, that you run the risk of, of getting the, green, the greenwash backlash. And that's very hard to recover from. Um, now, now, who... Uh, does that mean that in your efforts you have to change the mindset of the industry leaders themselves um, or the general mission and mandate of, of the company? Uh, surely it starts at the top um, to, to create that accountability, but that still must be an extremely hard um, idea to get across to them to, to really um, uh, give that accountability and allow the general public to steer them? Well, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. Um, but I've seen it, it. It's sort of the Wild West in the green marketing world at the moment. There are some people I hear saying, literally saying to me, we'd like you to come give us a talk on green marketing, but, but please don't make it about going green. You know, we want to know how to succeed in the green marketplace, but don't tell us we have to change our ways. Um, other people are very, very wary of saying that they're green in any sense of the word. They, they even say we're a little greener um, because they've either been burned by it or they've watched somebody else be burned by it, or they just, in their own, in their own mind, they're suspicious they're, of, of claims. You know, when... When the Chevy Yukon is the green car of the year at the L.A. Auto Show, because it, it gets 20 miles to the gallon, um, you know, it's a big, big SUV. And it's a huge step forward for a big SUV, but an, a big SUV is hardly a green car uh, from an energy efficiency perspective. And that, that sort of typifies um, suspicion about what this term green and sustainable even means. So... Uh, so there are some who are sort of pushing hard to jump in and figure out a way to capitalize on it, and, and those people are hard to sell. Um, but many others are being much, much more cautious. Uh, Nike, for example, is doing a lot of work in recyclable materials for their clothing, uh, their shoes, but they're not making a big issue out of it. And they're not unlike a lot of companies that are trying to genuinely be greener but they're really leery about saying too much too fast. Is it, is it not a reality, though, given the urgency of this whole issue, 
that it could be, I was going to say in the long term, but even in the short term, an absolute necessity for industries to literally um, cut their expectations of profitability just to just to meet the demands of, of what need to be met here to, to save this planet. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I think of it, I think about it in a particular and I hope more productive and hopeful way, and that is that those of us who are in business spend our careers adapting to new circumstances. We talked earlier about the introduction of computer technology into the design world, and it, it made profound changes in our all of a sudden, everybody expected it today, in by 10, out by 4, when we used to have weeks to think things over. Um, uh, so there, is a, there's a, a, there are dramatic changes that, in, as a business person, you constantly have to adapt to. And we invest in those changes all the time. And our profitability rises and falls in the near term as we invest in things that we think are important for our future. Well, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it, I suppose, that uh, over the next 10 years, many, many of these big top 300 companies will no doubt disappear in the changing times. And I suppose that um, the reality is, yes, these industries must be profitable uh, to create employment, to, to actually allow people to become more responsible and take care of the environment. But I suppose I could be terribly cynical and, and cite one example, and that is that where you go into a Toyota lot and you'll see a, a, a Prius sitting there next to a Toyota Highlander or an SUV. Yeah, uh, I, su- sure. I, I suppose really what I'm saying is that that, that, that choice – um, that product line may, at the rate we're going, literally have to be cut off at the ankles um, in, in order to, to meet the demands that we have to, to save this environment. I think that it should be, in fact. Um, and this means we have, to, we have to sort of play this from all sides, I suspect. On the one hand, um, you know, regulations always make business leaders unhappy. Uh, in, in California, I lived through the early 90s um, period when the Air Quality Management District outlawed lacquer paint, which was a mainstay in the, in the exhibit industry, and they outlawed lacquer-based contact cement. Uh, and the water-based alternatives that were better for air pollution weren't very good products back then. Um, the failure rate was high. The cost to redo things was high. Everybody complained about it. But also, most of us knew that we needed to do it for the sake of our own health. Um, and within a very few years, new products emerged that, that have taken the place of lacquer, and they work just fine, thanks very much. Nobody's complaining anymore, and everybody's profitable. Um, and that's just to say that, that regulation plays an important role in, in forcing the marketplace to change. But the other thing that I think is going to be equally necessary in this kind of, as we deal with carbon emissions, is to create a public mindset and expectation that ultimately makes driving things like an SUV um, so unsavory socially that people will want to run from them. And we're a long way from creating that new ethos. Um, and, and, and in saying that, if I may just interrupt, Tom, mm-hmm. um, looking at your, your global change methodology, 
um, uh, cited in your, your Bowman Designs approach that utilizes education analysis and most importantly communication and, mm-hmm. and talks about a mass media delivery and science communication so that public, the public can really understand that they have to make changes and that they are going to be social outcasts if they continue the way they are. Now, um, understanding what your job is as that communicator, um, what is it that hap- needs to happen in order to create that mass delivery? It clearly can't be a viral campaign on Facebook. Um, what are your ideas in that to, to create this mass change, this mass movement? Well, I have been working for the last couple of years with social scientists and and behavioral scientists and communications experts and others uh, in an effort to figure out where the breakdowns are and where the opportunities are in communicating about climate risk. And there are a lot, it's, it's a bit like confronting climate change when people say there's no silver bullet, we have to do a lot of different things. And I think the same is true in communication. Uh, on the one hand, there are some knowledge gaps um, people generally know about global warming. Most people believe it's happening. Most people believe humans are responsible for it and that it won't be good for us. Um, they don't really know that solutions exist. And by and large, most people aren't certain about that. Nor are people really aware of the urgency and scale of action that's required to minimize those risks. Um, people tend to still, I think half the public still thinks that Climate impacts that would be negative are, you know, 50 years away or they'll only occur on the other side of the world, far from home. They don't realize that the wildfires in California are driven by our gradually drying climate or, um, or that the loss of the Sierra snowpack is affecting our water supply already in California. Um, in other words, climate change is here and the pace of it is accelerating and, and so that sense of urgency and the reasons for it still need to be communicated as facts. But aside from that, um, we really need to c- confront um, our, our images of ourselves in, in, in nature, our sense that we're separate from it, our sense that we're uh, free to use it and exploit it. And this means we need to get at the psychology, um, at psychology in communication. And we need to create opportunities for people to genuinely uh, figure to get figure out together what all this means and what they want to do with it as neighbors as community as uh, communities as co-workers um, because making these choices together is what ultimately creates new norms and behavioral expectations that will that will speed people along and there are lots of ways to do that and lots of pieces of, of a overall campaign to do that. One is uh, the traditional mass media advertising. Another piece is the kind of hopefully viral stuff that happens with YouTube and other social media. Um, but I think it's also going to take a lot of very hands-on uh, dialogue facilitation um, that's carefully crafted to, to empower people to make choices. Um, and that's not a simple thing to do. You can't just throw up ads and run them and hope for the best. This is this is something that occurs on a on a much more profound level. Um, and I think it would be easier if we had national leadership that was championing this cause like no other. But we have we have never had that. And and so I tend to think about what to do 
assuming that that will, we will continue not to have it. Well, looking at and and going back to a point that you just made that we need to see a change in in culture patterns, personal behavior, corporate behavior. Um, it, it is rather an irony, is it not, that we are very dominated by industry now who, mm-hmm. who create uh, and lead uh, our lifestyles. So the irony there is that it's probably industry I, – I could cite the, white, the, the Walmarts and, and a host of or, uh, many other companies that, that really do uh, steer out daily lifestyles that, that have to change as much as we do as individuals um, in, in assuring that, that that behavior changes. Yes, and I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you uh, from, a, from a social change perspective which is the chicken and which is the egg. Um, I think, in fact, that the, that the you know, companies exist in an ongoing, essentially an ongoing dialogue, if that's not too, too highfalutin sounding, with their customers. Um, they're forever responding to customer demand, but they're also creating customer demand, and they're working very hard to do that. And there's hope in that, because um, when you work with groups of people, and groups of people make decisions, they can turn on a dime. Um, It happened in my own little company. It's only seven people. Um, But when I first made a sustainability plan and and had them read it and presented it at a staff meeting, the the blank looks on people's faces and the almost terror that these goals were too stringent and they didn't know how they would achieve them um, was fairly quickly replaced by a sense that this was the right thing to do and we were going to figure it out. And when they saw progress start to happen, their their morale rapidly got behind it, and pretty soon they were pushing harder. Um, and that's not to say that we all live perfectly sustainable lives by any means. We're we're normal people. Uh, but it does suggest that uh, that it's possible for communities to create um, new intention fairly quickly. And, you know, one of the great things about a global economy is that product offerings and service offerings can adapt very, very fast now. How this will play out is unknown, but uh, 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 I tend not to be not to be pessimistic about it. I want to, uh, if I may, refer to a co-authored letter of yours to the scientific community mm-hmm. um, outlining those three steps and, and, and quoting, uh, simplifying the complex science and translating the scientific language allows all members of society, both policymakers and consumers, to confront the climate crisis and make informed decisions. We need to put the science in the hands of the people. But again, uh, putting putting that responsibility in the hands of the people surely does take very, very strong leadership to achieve that. It does, and um, and, 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 and and whether and sorry, but whether that be whether that be political leadership or or or, or somebody just appearing out of the the ether. Uh, either way, it's it's going to take an extremely uh, um, profound individual to steer people down this road to understanding the full implications. I think it does. And I think it takes um, a fearlessness to face it. It really does. Because the, the implications are not, you know, science can tell us what the lay of the land is. 
but it can't tell us what it means to us or what we should do about it. Um, and it raises questions of you know competing values. Um, I want to live a lifestyle I enjoy, but what do I owe to my neighbors and what do I owe to my children's generation and what do I owe to people living in other countries? Um, all of these questions come into play. Uh, and in addition to the sort of m- more practical veneer of of can we protect the environment and, and not hurt the economy at the same time and all the questions surrounding that. And it, it, it means it, that that a small that someone or a small group of someone's need to be willing to put themselves on the line and tell it like it is and but with a real sense of of um, positive hope and real clarity about the opportunities that this can create and you know we all <laughs> it's the kind of problem that you work at at multiple levels at the same time part of it is grassroots part of it is in communities or in companies that want to become pioneers in this area. Um, When someone like Bill Gates says climate change is the most important issue of our time, even though he's been investing heavily philanthropically in in the major diseases that plague Africa, to hear him say that is 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 a great thing to hear. Because it, you know, as more and more uh, highly respected leaders begin to talk seriously about this as something we need to deal with, it's just helpful. Um, I think the political barriers are, are enormous, and, um, and that's largely the real challenge we face. But um, it would be ideal if a Gandhi would step forward or a Martin Luther King who could champion this cause with their, um, with their commitment and eloquence and create the kind of social movement that, that we ultimately need. Um, but these things don't just pop up. These things form over time, and 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 but, we'll see if it goes that way. But g- given given the state of the economy and people's fragility right now, mm-hmm. is it more likely that that somebody is going to pop up that actually uh, supports, uh, in more greater part, the the actual uh, humanities side of things rather than the environmental side? It's interesting that you put it that way. Um, I am beginning to think more and more that climate change is ultimately a humanitarian issue, not an environmental issue. Um, it's an issue of social justice, and uh, it's an issue of creating a food supply, a water supply, uh, a, a, a life that's free of the burden of infectious disease and asthma and other other conditions that are degrading. Um, it's an issue of um, of not using our casual consumption and and sort of ignorant abundance um, in ways that are harmful to people who are less fortunate than we are in our own towns, um, because it's the poor who tend to, to to bear the brunt of environmental harm much more than the wealthy. And I'm beginning to think that that perhaps the real power of this issue grows there uh, as a as a social change movement. Um, I don't believe that industry... I mean, it's good to see that, that there are elements of, of our industry, uh, including the energy industry, companies like Southern California Edison and Pacific Gas and Electric and, and others, Google, that are focusing heavily on um, 
next generation energy supply and new technologies to be more energy efficient and all of that. But there also needs to be, uh, and I think ultimately there will be, a, just a push from people to say we need to be treated fairly and we want to be able to write our own future. Uh, and as that, as that power generates, and I would say it's not generated at all yet, but as it, if it does, um, that will push politicians and the courts and the regulators and businesses farther and farther in that direction. And I, and I, and I think that that is where I'm going with that comment, that to, mm-hmm. to my mind it is probably going to be that profound shift that uh, is, is going to arrive our way probably sooner rather than later that actually acts as that catalyst that will take care of the environment indirectly. That would be that would be fine. That would be brilliant. Um, I, I think people have a hard time dealing with issues of the environment because there is a there are already a lot of political sort of brand images in our minds about them. Um, we tend to pit the environment against the economy. I live in a state in California which is um, sort of organized to protect the public through regulation, and and so the environment is is managed through a whole set of, of, of laws that force business to do business in certain ways here. And some businesses adapt and thrive. Others move their manufacturing to Arizona and Georgia and China so that they can escape. Um, in contrast, a, a state like Texas has a very entrepreneurial sort of ethos that doesn't put very many environmental restrictions on business because they want to promote business. And, you know, if you look at the data, um, and carbon emissions from Texas are about three times what they are in California. So there's a, you know, there's a very clear implication that, that if business is left entirely on its own, um, the environment won't be cleaned up. And it ultimately becomes uh, people demanding something they believe is their right uh, to force the market and regulators to do the right thing. In the closing uh, couple of minutes of the program, what is it that you feel, Tom, that we have to do ultimately and most importantly to make sure that our children and our children's children make a positive judgment on us as a generation um, that actually proves that we have taken action? Um. I'm, gonna, I'm interpreting your question as what each of us should, how each of us should face that question. Absolutely. And, and I think that there are basically two things each of us need to do. Um, each one of us needs to make a commitment to reduce our carbon emissions to as close to zero as possible, as quickly as we can, given the circumstances that we live in. Uh, and we will, f- you will find that it's much easier to do than you think. It means eating less beef, and um, because that's such a huge factor, um, it means insulating your home. It means starting to invest some of the. You know, we're wealthy by the most of the world's standards. We're fabulously wealthy. We need to invest a little bit of that wealth to make our our homes and our vehicles and our habits as energy efficient as we possibly can. The second thing we need to do is we need to literally start talking about this with our friends and coworkers and neighbors 
Um, people don't talk about climate much. It's a little bit more than they did a year ago, but I, would, I tested this at parties. People would say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I work on climate communication, and they'd find an excuse to walk away because they think it's a downer. Um, we need to break the ice so that this is something that we begin to take seriously together, and that will ha- make it easier for us to start pressing our politicians to do what we need for them to do as well. And then at the same time, I'm thinking that in order to get a greater consensus, a greater form of action, uh, more people involved, that we also have to look at our neighbors who are also living on the streets and, and in poverty, even in this country, to ensure that they become involved in this mission. There's no doubt. Um, in fact, I was recently reading a book by a, a social environmental justice scholar who says there's there's a real correlation between egalitarianism and environmental quality of life. Um, and, I mean, that's empirical evidence. The, the places that take care of people also take care of the environment. Those that don't tend not to do the other either. Tom Bowman, it has been an absolute pleasure sharing this time with you on the program today, and I will certainly look forward to um, doing this again on a future program, and I wish you well uh, with with these uh, wonderful uh, visions and missions that you have in saving our environment. Well, many thanks. I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, and to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have today. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. There is a, a operational blog page where you can leave comments or questions for any of our guests, and I'm sure that when they have a spare chance, they will be happy to respond to those questions that you may want to provide. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, do take care of it and each other. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.